0: Welcome to the SCG Church Podcast. We'd love to have you join us for our weekend services in person in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our service live online at scgchurch.org or live on our Facebook and YouTube pages. Thanks for listening. You know, as a, as a recent dad, there's this thing that happens at 6.55 every single night. My wife tells me that kids need like, you know, schedule and like a, like a regimen, you know. And so at 6.55 every single, every single day, we, we snuggle up on our bed with our six-month-old daughter, Noelle, and uh, we open up a Bible, and we just share stories of, of the Bible. And the purpose is, my hope and my prayer is that these pages would come alive to her and that she would get to see God in a fresh and new way. And yes, she's only six months, but we're going to do this day in and day out um, for as long as she stays with us in the house. You know, story time is something that's my favorite time. It starts at 6.55, Right? You know, I also created an email address for her when she was born with the sole purpose of taking pictures and videos and sending it to her that one day, maybe when she's 16, 17 or 18, that I'm going to give it to her and show her how much we care of her as a family and we love her. But in that also shows stories of her childhood. And my hope and prayer is that she would see how God is working and how we see as her parents God working through her life. And so I love story time and I love that my daughter going to see the story of her life um, through the lens of people that love her. You know, so today I want to do an experiment with you, and that's what I want to do, story time together, before we kind of jump into where I want to head today. And so today, I want to share with you, like I share with my daughter, how I see the story that we're going to be journeying through in a moment come alive, and how I see it in my own mind. See, our story begins with 14 people, but really only two main characters. Our first character is a Jewish rabbi, and he's woken up by his alarm clock of 12 followers shaking his tent because they got a long journey ahead of him that day. See, it's still dark outside because it's 5.30 in the morning, and the only light is the glow from last night's campfire that are now just embers. He lays covered in the warmth of his blanket for a few minutes, and then he kind of yawns to yawn away yesterday and to start today. As he goes to get up from the hard and cold ground in which he slept on, he stretches up towards the sky with palms facing heavenward, not just to stretch, but also to get his mission for that day. See, those lifted up in open hands are met with the first beam of sunlight that caresses the mountain ridge line that tell him to walk in the direction that the sun sets, not rises, as if his mission that day is to walk towards the darkness of the day to bring light. So he grabs his dew-covered tent, packs it in his bag, and tells his followers some news that, oh man, they're not going to like. Boys, we've got to go to that place today, he tells them. See, his followers, being polite, didn't want to argue with him, but their confusion kind of wells up within them, and they say, Rabbi... We don't go to places like that. Good people like us don't go to bad places like that. I mean, do you not know the history? Do you not know the animosity between our two people group? Like, do you not know what's going on? See, rabbi, good people like us don't associate with godless, wicked people like them. And so the rabbi, with a gentle smile on his face, doesn't respond to the accusation. He just tells them to pour out the little remaining water they have on the fire and to follow him as he begins to march off in a direction that no Jew would ever dare go. See, the 12th. They allow the rabbi to walk alone for maybe, let say, the distance of a football field, bickering back and forth at each other before they decide to chase after him as he walks away from the light of the day. They're walking for hours. It's now high noon and the sun has scorched the desert sand in such a way that heat waves encircle them, sweat covers them, one question plagues them, what could be so important in Samaria? Just then at the end of the horizon, it appears a well. Maybe it's a mirage. See, the followers don't know which one it could be, but the rabbi does. He instructs them in their thirst to skip the well and walk the miles more into town to get some food and to get some water. And in angered submission, they turn right as the rabbi presses forward to get closer and closer to his divine appointment of that day. As he approaches the well, he sees a woman at the heat of the day face down pulling up the water from the well for her family, with eight rowdy children playing in a roughhousing all around her at her ankles. See, hours before this rabbi steps foot into this town, there's a woman who's woken up by her alarm clock of eight children that come from five different dads. Her youngest pulls her arm quietly as to not wake the man on the other side of the bed, and whom they don't really know that well, whispering in her ear, Mom, can you make us some breakfast, please? See, at 7.30 in the morning, although it's light outside, it kind of seems dark in this man's home. She lays in bed for a few more minutes, covered in the warmth of her blanket, but still feels a sense of coldness that covers her life. She walks over to the pantry to make her children their breakfast as they run around the living room. and So she fills eight bowls with eight portions of cereal and goes to grab nine glasses. But as she is drawing water out of her ceramic vase, she can only satisfy eight glasses because there's not enough for the ninth glass, which is hers. She walks over to the window and peeks through the blinders where you can see the city well being surrounded by all of the city's women getting water for their families that morning. As she looks back at their needs of the family, she glances back out that window and peeks through the blinds and under her breath says, I'd rather have the heat of the sun over the heat of their scorn. I'll go midday so no one's there. She knows these women enjoy bringing up her past to make her presently miserable. See, everyone in the town doesn't care to know her name. They just care to tell her story. So they feel a little bit better about theirs and their sin. The truth is the wounds of five broken romances have taken their toll on her. It was as if each man had left her and also taken a piece of her heart. So she knows the feelings of emptiness well. But now she's experiencing thirst. And so this morning is spent playing with her children on the ground, all while standing up and going over to the window looking out, wondering when the well will be lonely so she can make her way over there. As the sun sets high and at the heat of the day, the well finally invites her out to get some water for her family. So she grabs her children and that ceramic vase, and as she heads out the door, a scarf to cover her face so she can go unknown. Successfully and covertly, she makes her way and begins the hard work of pulling up the family's water from this very deep well. As the water gets closer, she sees in the reflection of the water her life story and the wrinkles of her face. It was just then that she hears the voice of a Jewish rabbi coming from behind her and learns that the one who made it all well, he hasn't left it all. And he's the type of God that is willing to send light into the darkest stories if they'll give him a little faith. See, we don't know her name. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we do know her situation and her story. Even though she came to the well at high noon, her life was as dark as midnight. And it was that darkness that drove the light of the world to her. You see, this is how I imagine this story. In a moment, I I want you to Go to the book of John chapter 4 so that we can imagine it together and that we can meet these characters too. But before we do that, would you guys pray with me? Father, today I'm thankful. I'm thankful, Lord God, that you're a God that is constantly bringing light to dark areas. And I'm thankful, Father, that as we go through the pages of this story, my prayer and my hope, of God, is that you would ultimately meet us with yourself and, God, that you would fill our heart like we're going to meet that you fill this woman's heart in this story. And so, Father, we ask, God, that you would meet us, that you would teach us. It's in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. So today, my hope, my prayer, in sharing that story with you, and as we're going to jump into it in John chapter 4, is that this story would come alive to you. And so there are three things. Just three things that I hope for us to glean, to learn, and discover about the God that we worship. The first is this. Jesus meets you at the well. The second, Jesus empties you at the well. And then the third, Jesus fills you at the well. I want you to go with me to the book of John. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, the verses should be up there. We're going to start in verse 1, and it says this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees, those were those religious rulers... Had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. Kind of pause. There's an abrupt kind of moment now in the story. Jesus didn't have to do anything, right? I mean, it's kind of terrible grammar, but it's actually terrific theology. It's actually called the divine imperative. It means that the Father willed it, the Son obeyed it, and the Spirit sustained it. The only other time in Scripture Jesus had to do something was what? When he had to go to the cross for you and me. And so if Jesus had to do something in this story, there must be something contained within the pages of this story that's foundational to our faith, something that we need to see and unlock maybe within our lives so that we can experience the freedom that this woman eventually experiences. Follow with me in verse 5. It continues and says this. So he came to a town of, I want you to highlight Samaria, called Sikar, in the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. So let me kind of do a quick little history lesson. Six, seven hundred years before this, there was a guy named King Nebuchadnezzar, and he led the Babylonian army through Judea and sacked the temple, and took almost everyone captive, exiling them to the Babylonian empire 700 miles a day, away from Judea, basically to modern day Iraq. And now, if you know your Bible, you know that this is found in the book of Daniel, and if you grew up watching VeggieTales like me, then you know, his story, and historian, you've met his friends, right? Rack, Shack, and Benny. See... All that was left behind in Babylon, I'm sorry, in Judea, were kind of the lowest classes of society because they didn't want that type in Babylon. There was a mold, there was a a way that you needed to conform, a way that you needed to appear, and these people didn't fit that mold. They had no place. Maybe they weren't educated, maybe they weren't wealthy, maybe they were impoverished, maybe they were poor. Whatever it may be, there was a type that was in Babylon, and because you didn't fit that mold, you were excluded and you weren't welcome. And so in the eyes of the Jewish people that were left behind, they were supposed to preserve the faith, right? You stayed behind. King Nebuchadnezzar, this evil king, took us away. So you're supposed to preserve the faith, but instead they abandoned it as they intermarried with other people that slowly started coming into that region. And so they eventually adopted their gods and their culture, and thus the Samaritans emerged as an ethnic and a religious group. Now, you can imagine, right, this caused the Jews to hate them, right? They did not like them. And because they viewed them as half-breeds who had an eclectic, mongrel type of faith. And remember, they were supposed to preserve the faith, but now they have a faith that looks nothing like Judaism, even though the Samaritans say they worship the very same God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, but their faith looks nothing like the Jewish faith. Follow with me in the verse 6 is where we get our setting and scene. It continues. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, where it is he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, John is intelligent. Why did he include this specific place, but also the hour, sixth hour? It's Jewish time, and it means that he was 12 uh, o'clock, midday. Now, the Middle East is hotter than Cyprus throughout the month of August, right? And so no one is going to the well at midday. It's 100 plus degrees. It's not the place that you want to go, and so he includes this because it's an important part of the story. Here's another thing almost every aspect of daily life in the ancient world involved water. Where you needed it to cook, you needed it to clean, you needed it to drink, and you needed it to grow your family's food, right? And so all of the primary function of wells in the, na- in the ancient Near East were to supply water for the household. They also served as a, let's say, social gathering place like the office water coolers do today, right, where people kind of go and hang out and learn about each other's lives and stories and their kids and all that stuff. And so it was typically the daily chore, right, of the young woman to go and get water for the household. And then the young men of that village, knowing that, would make their way over to the well to start flirting and shooting their shot with all the women there, right? Hopefully to get a wife away from the watchful eyes of the girls' fathers, which is like the modern day, like young adults ministry. But anyways, (laughs) I know why you come. Anyways, wells, wells were often seen as a place where life happens, but also where futures could be altered by the love, the hope that you might find there. Kind of like a modern day wishing well, right? You're throwing your hopes and your dreams and your love in there, hoping that this moment alters your future in some sense of the way. So it's scandalous, right? It's scandalous that Jesus is at this romantic scene at a well. And not just that, right? It's scandalous that a Jewish rabbi is at this well in a place called Samaria, right? He's God incarnate. He's God in a bod. What is he doing at this well in Samaria? The whole story is scandalous. Now, obviously, he's not looking for love, right? However, he is looking to alter the future of someone who desperately does need the love of God in their lives. We're going to meet her in a second. Follow with me in the next verse, verse 7. It says this, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Hey, could you give me a drink? Now Jesus, <laughs> like he always did, in keeping with tradition, he broke all of their traditions and all of their customs, right? So he's going through Samaria, going to a well, talking to a woman at the heat of the day, as a Jewish rabbi, scandalous, right? Rabbis didn't even talk to their wives in public, let alone a stranger and a Samaritan woman with the story we're about to find out in a second. Verse 8 and 9, the story continues. It says, For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you a Jew ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealing. Do you not know the history? No dealing with Samaritans. She's shocked. She's perplexed that this Jewish man is actually being kind to her. In fact, one commentator said something that it broke my heart. It said that this was probably the first interaction that she's ever had in her entire adult life where a man was kind to her, where a man was merciful. Not just a Jewish man, but any man was kind and merciful to her. See, Another interesting thing that shocks this woman is there was a teaching that was going on through contemporary rabbis that taught at the same time that Jesus lived and taught at the same time that Jesus uh, lived and taught. And that the teaching was this, that if a Samaritan woman was in distress while giving birth, that you should allow both of them to die because if you aid, all you have done is you have allowed another Samaritan to come into this world. And so racism is obviously apparent and disgust for each other is historically established. The one question going through her mind is, why is this Jewish man talking to me? Does he want something from me? Why is he talking? Why is he being kind to me? We get our answer in verse 10. It says this. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, like most of the things that Jesus say, they immediately fly over our heads, then we've got to go back and do some studying. This flies right over her head too, right? 10,000 feet above her. But having captured her attention and maybe stimulating her curiosity because of his kindness, generosity, and maybe humility, he basically says to her, look, your shock is going to be infinitely greater when you find out exactly who you are talking to. I'm not just any man. I'm the God man. And when you find that out, it's going to flip your life upside down. Follow with me in verse 11. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? So kind of Jesus, like, or uh, the woman sizes Jesus up, right? Looks him up and looks him down, and it was like... You're here at the well, but you don't have any rope. You don't have a bucket, a ceramic vase. You don't got any of that type of stuff. You didn't bring a Home Depot bucket. You got nothing, right? So like, what are you, what are you doing here right now? Like, like, why are you at this well with me alone at the hottest part of the day, right? You, if, you're, if you've come here, right, to get water, you've come with the wrong tools for the job. If you've come here to get water, you're unprepared and you're ill-equipped for this job. See, it's at this injunction that Jesus' life intersects with the life of a woman who was trying to solve her life's problems using the wrong tools, using the wrong resources, going to the wrong places, and asking the wrong people. And I think we've all maybe been there at some level and some point, right? I mean, here's the question. Have you ever tried to fix a problem using the wrong tools or in an untraditional way? If you're struggling to come up with an answer, just think back to all of of the things you use duct tape for, right? Or super glue. In fact, I found a few, actually, ways that uh, husbands have used uh, duct tape. Like, honey, it's fixed. You go, uh, that's about how handy I am. Yeah, I don't know what, I don't know what Edison's doing, but that's not it. Um, this guy really wanted that TV. Next one is brilliant. I love that. That's, it's no explosions. It's staying. <laughs> oh yeah, can you imagine you're on an airplane and that popped up? I would, I would be pressing the button, like, get me out of here. I don't know what that is, but I don't like that either, right? <laughs> so at some level, I think we've all tried to solve big problems using the wrong resources the wrong way. We find that in this woman's story. Continue with me in verse 12, and it says, It says this. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. In other words, this well for centuries now has been nourishing our people, it's been good to our people. Life happens at the well, it's why it's at the city center. It's been great to us. It's allowed us to feed our families and, and, and grow food and have livestock. It's been good to us and it's been here for centuries. What do you, a stranger, have that could possibly be better than this well, than Jacob's well? Verse 13, it says, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. In other words, are you tired of going back to the same well day after day? Are you tired of going to this well that keeps you empty and in a constant state of wanting more? Verse 14. Whatever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will come in him, a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. This is pivotal to the story. Why? Because for the first time in the story, Jesus gives us a working definition of what a well is. A well is something that gives life. Better yet, a well is something that we are trying to get life from. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a well that you keep going back to? Is, Is there something in your life that you keep going back to that you think it's finally going to be satisfying. And it may be momentarily, right? But eventually the appetite of satisfaction always comes back, asking for more. And then we're finding out the real true and hard way that true life and true wholeness isn't found in the wells of the world. And that's what Jesus is going to teach us. Follow with me, verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water ever again, again. 15,000 feet over her head now. She has no idea. She's perplexed. What is this Jewish rabbi talking about? See, in her mind, all she's thinking about was, can this Jewish rabbi, can this stranger and man give me such a water that I can now avoid my frequent trips to Jacob's well covered in a scarf so no one knows who I really am? But in her heart, in her subconscious heart of hearts, all she's thinking about was, can this man, this stranger, this Jewish rabbi give me something that I'm going to have to live in my shame any longer? brings us to the second point. Jesus empties you at the well. Verse 16, here's where the story gets crazy. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here, right? This is like a rut-row moment, right? This is a nightmare scenario for this woman, right? This is the reason she's at the well midday, right? Because she has a, a, a sexual past, a, a, a long marital history maybe, right? And she's got a cobwebbed closet door of skeletons, and she's trying to keep clothes, and now this kind Jewish man brings up her, her, her situation maybe? It's gonna get a little bit worse, but all she's thinking about is, what is this guy doing? And how does this stranger have such an intimate knowledge of all that I am and all that I've ever done? See, Jesus isn't bringing this question up because he cares about cultural norms and, and doesn't want to be at the well at midday with a woman alone. No, 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 no. Standing by a well as she's holding water from this well, he surgically points out to her her real well. See, this woman attempted to fill the emptiness of her life by entering into a new relationship, and then a new relationship, and then another one, thinking that the emptiness in her life stems from not having the right person or guy in her life. But she was convinced. She imagined, she daydreamed about, if I could find the right guy who could sweep me off my feet, I'll finally be full. I'll find Everything is going to be finally all right. I mean, maybe she even convinced herself, right, that if I could just have another kid, maybe, maybe, maybe having another child with this person is going to heal the broken relationship we're having. But all it did was make life a little bit more complicated and even a little less hopeful that things were going to change for the better. (laughs) What is this Jewish rabbi doing in this story? Like, in John 4, what's he doing? What's the message? What's he trying to teach us? It's this. As long as you and I look for spiritual answers, I'll say it this way, physical answers to meet spiritual needs, we are going to stay in a constant state of emptiness and longing. As long as we look for physical answers to spiritual needs, you will stay empty and you will stay longing. See, your deepest need, my deepest need, our deepest need is not that we don't have enough. It's that you're going to the wrong well day in and day out. It's that you're looking for life and life abundantly in all of the wrong places. I mean, the truth is, right, we all have a well that we keep coming back to that we think is going to fill our hearts, but it constantly leaves us maybe momentarily satisfied, but leaves us constantly discontented. Maybe for you, right, you're looking for life and placing it in the well of your work, and as long as you're moving, as long as you're generating, as long as you're producing and creating and saving and doing, then you feel okay, but then retirement's going to come one day, and who are you now? Maybe for you, you, you run from those feelings of emptiness by filling your schedules. And as long as your life has the external appearance of fullness, you can believe the, in, the lie that you have internal fullness as well. I mean, Maybe for you, you quench the feeling of emptiness, let's say, in the well of hedonism, which is the pursuit of happiness and pleasure and experience. So here's the truth. People aren't actually addicted to pleasure, or even alcohol, drugs, or any type of substance. They're addicted to escaping reality. Why? Because their hearts know something that their mind have yet to figure out, and that's this. that You can only go to these wells until they run dry, leaving you emptier than you were before. And we've all, right, we've all at some level tried to put our hope in something of this world. And it didn't work out. The relationship didn't work out. The savings didn't work out. 2008 came, whatever it may be, right? And, and we realized that this world isn't as stable as we wish that it possibly could be. And Jesus, time and time again, is trying to teach us that. Do not store up your treasures here on earth where, ro- where rust and moths can destroy. Store up your treasures in heaven. The parable of the wise and foolish builders, right? Where one person builds on the sand, which is probably beachfront property. It's probably easier and nicer. And that person is vesting in the wells of this world. And then there's the other one that invests in the rock, which is harder. But when the wind comes and when the waves blow the how stead still. See, whether it be money or sex or substance, there's always going to be a desire for more because our soul has this unquenchable desire for the infinite, and that's why only an infinite God can satisfy it. St. Augustine said it this way, our hearts are going to be restless until they find our rest in you. And so you're sitting, and you're saying, Matt, how how do I begin to identify this well, this thing I'm looking for life in? It's not just the thing you're looking for life in, but the thing that you're placing your security in your identity in, the thing you're trying to get hope from, and also if the thing if loss would cause you to lose all meaning in your life. It's the thing that absorbs your imagination. It's the thing that absorbs your heart. It's the thing that you daydream about, saying if I could only get closer to that well and drink from that water, I'm finally going to be satiated, gratified, and contented. It could be the well of moving to a place where people have similar ideologies and political preferences that you do, whatever it may be. See, it's the thing that you really think is going to make your life better. It's the thing that you think is going to make your life meaningful. And so just turn on the TV, or as you leave here today, flip on the radio or open up a magazine, and you're going to find someone promoting something that will bring your life fullness and wholeness and satisfaction into your life. But here's the truth. Right? The world may have many good things, it just has a lot of bad gods. That's one of his points. Another thing is that there are a lot of good things this side of heaven that can add to your life. But there's nothing this side of heaven that can give you life. And so this is why Jesus must do the hard work of pouring out what we've poured in that has watered down our life. He has to do two things. He first must pour out that we have hope in, and two, that which we have shame from. we we'll are talk about both these in a second. See, time and time again, Jesus in Scripture is telling us not to put our ultimate hope and value into things of this world, but the one who brings ultimate hope to our world. Why? Because he knows attempting to satisfy spiritual needs with physical things is going to make you emptier than before as you slowly lose hope in the world around you. And so for our woman that we met in our story, the downward spiral had begun because she didn't know where to go to fix the spiritual need of hers, who to go to. And so she kept going to the wrong wells. And the truth is she couldn't have known. Why couldn't she have known? Let's find out together in verse 19. It says this. The woman said to him, Sir, I that you're a prophet. You're religious. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. She starts to do a history and geography kind of conversation. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we people ought to worship. In other words, she's kind of throwing out this religion card. I mean, you go to that church, I go to this church. And I'm sincerely going through these motions, doing what I think I'm supposed to do. See, Jesus wanted her to know this. She has wrong thoughts about the right God, and he came to fix that in her life follow with me in verse 21 through 24. It's a a larger uh, section. It says this, Jesus said to her, woman, this is the same uh, word in Hebrew that he used for his mother in in John chapter 9. It means beloved one, my daughter, believe. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We'll talk about that in a second. We worship what we know. For salvation, wholeness, is for the Jews or from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must also worship him in spirit and in truth. Man, there's so much here, but just for the sake of time, let me just tell you this. What is he trying to teach us? It's this. To be filled by God, you first must know God, as he has made himself known in the truth of his word, or you will continue to go to the wrong wells of this world, staying in a state of emptiness. See, real worship is more than your sincerity or you being earnest. It is not the sincerity or strength of someone that saves them. It is the object of their faith that saves or fills them. You can have small faith in a great God and be full and saved. You can have large faith in a fake and false God and be empty and doomed. See, real worship always has to be based on truth, on knowledge, on knowing the God of Scripture and actually having a relationship with the real God as he's revealed himself. See, the Samaritans only believe in the first five books of the Bible. It's called the Torah, the books of Moses. And what this means is they had an incomplete revelation of God, a lacking knowledge of who who, who he was and what he was really like. And so they couldn't be filled by God because they didn't know God. And here's the truth, and I don't mean to step on anyone's toes today, but if you aren't in your Bibles, you too will develop sincere thoughts about wrong things. And you will continue to chase wells of this world and stay empty as you play religion and never enter into a relationship with God because you don't know Him. So many churches, so many people think that that God sounds like the voice of their pastor. God sounds like Doyle or Cody. They've never actually opened up the pages of Scripture and tried to hear what his voice sounds like going to the well of his word. What does God sound like? What does he have for me? I heard a quote that I really like. The Bible is living water um, and daily bread, not fancy drink and some cake for some special occasions. See, the truth is, if you want to be filled by God, you need to practice the rhythm of going to the well of his word daily. See, one of his points here is that there's a world difference between a profession of faith and the, the filling of its possession. I don't know if this is theologically correct, but as I look at the lives of maybe many people that have professed faith in Christ, they may have a saved soul, but they almost live like a a lost life. Like there is no hope. There's no, quote, victory. There is no, yeah, hope. Hope is the best word for this. Jesus meets you at the well, Jesus empties you at the well, and finally, Jesus fills you at the well. I want to remind us, right, the story began where this woman was so caught up in her shame and the shame of her past and the secret sins of her life, right, that she couldn't even go to the well at midday when other women were there, when other women were at the hottest part, or yeah, when they were at the well. Her shame kept her away from all of that. Notice something in the story that's pivotal. In the story, Jesus drew her to the shame of her past, but with the purpose of drawing it out of her so that it could no longer control her future. And the truth is, Jesus must do the very same thing with us. He will draw us to something of our past and draw it out of us so that it doesn't have to control the narrative of our futures. We see this, and it interrupts this girl's life. It changes it forever. Follow with me in verse 28 and see how pivotal, see how foundationally changed she is. So the woman left her water jar, and went into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Could this be the Savior? Could this be the one that was promised for generations now that is going to bring shalom, which means wholeness, peace, back into this world? That's going to restore all the things that I've done wrong. Could this be the Christ? Notice with me two things. Number one, what she left. She left the water jar, which is a metaphor for the thing that she thought could fill her. And then two, notice who she ran to. She ran to the very people that she was trying to hide from because of her shame. See, God used her shame or pain or fear of rejection as the means to invite his message of wholeness into her life. You know, what does the word holiness mean? Yes, it does mean to be set apart, but it also means to be whole. Let me just ask you a question. How many people do you know emulate the quality of wholeness? Like they they are content with who they are and what's going on in their lives. And they need not more because there's just an anchoring. They are built in the rock. Here's what this means for you and me. As long as you are holding on to your shame or some lie you've believed about yourself, you're never going to be whole either. In first grade, I I found out that I had a learning disability. And uh, specifically, learning disability was in reading and being able to regurgitate something right after I read it, which is hilarious now that I'm a pastor. I do this publicly. God has a sense of humor, right? You know, each and every single year, I was in this program called R.S.P., and I have a twin sister who uh, is brilliant. She was in the opposite type of programs, which is called GATE, like the smart, intelligent kids through accelerated classes. And I remember in first grade, I sat down with my mom, a psychologist, and the principal, and they said, Matt, you have have a learning disability. And that was the first time in my life that I heard, you're not enough, You're, you're insignificant, you are insufficient, you don't have what it takes. Year after year... I would have to do an IEP meeting with either the principal and my parents and a psychologist, and we'd do cognitive testing to see where I was at in each and every single year for 12 total years. I had this blue envelope of my IEP meetings that said insufficient, behind, poor, not enough. His cognitive development isn't improving. Whatever it may be, year after year after year after year. And so I dreaded going into these meetings because I knew what the envelope was going to say. Because there was either 10 or 11 or 12 other papers in there from 12 years of my past that said the very same thing, below standard. I remember my, uh, my senior year of high school, I had to, before going into college, do an, or my last IEP meeting. And I met with the, uh, the psychologists and counselors and all of that, and we did some cognitive testing. And it was two or three hours long, and I walked in with my head low. And we did the testing, and, and she said, Matt, I, uh, I need to ask you to come back next week. And I was like, man, she needs... A week to tell me that it hasn't improved. So I walk out and I come back a week later, with my head maybe even lower. And she says, Matt, we need to do another two or three hour session of testing. It's like So I do the testing and at the end I could just see that she has these eyes of bewilderment. And she says, Matt, I don't know what to tell you. This has never happened in all the years I've done this. You don't have a learning disability anymore. She said, I don't know what's happening, and I don't know what's going on. I've never seen this. You've scored advanced in every area that I've tested you in. See, the only thing that changed my senior year of high school was that I gave my life to the Lord. See, weeks before this, I finally got the courage to get on my hands and my knees by my bed and say, God, I give you all that I am for all that you are could you use the little raw material of my life and do something with it? I don't have much to give you. I'm insignificant. I have 12 years of papers that say that. I remember that she handed me the blue envelope and then a red one that overwrote overwrote all of the, the 12 years of my past like the red letters of Jesus. And I walked out of that meeting. I got in my car with on my right hand holding the blue envelope and the red on my left, and I just cried. That God can bring life to the things of this world that are insignificant, that God can rewrite stories, that if you'll give him your past, if you will give him your fear, if you'll give him your shame, he'll bring and breathe life into it. God's in the business of doing that. Here's what I know about you. There's a lie that you've believed about yourself, because Satan's good at his job. In the book of John 8:44, it says this, for he's the father of all lies, and he whispers it. Maybe it started at the playground when kids were mean to you and they said this to you, but now he whispers it to you in your adulthood. Insignificant. You can't do that. You're, you don't have what it takes. Whatever it may be, you're unlovable. Whatever the lie is. In John 10.10, 10, it says, For the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy, to teach you a new narrative about your life that keeps you in the chains of bondage. But Jesus says, For I have come to give life, and I give it abundantly. Four chapters later, in John 14.6, he says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. Notice the truth comes before the life. Understanding a new narrative of who you are so you can live in the power and freedom of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 19, Paul says this, he says, For my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And then Paul says, For therefore I boast all about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Our God is in the business of taking things that are dead and putting life in them, taking things that have no future and infusing a life into them. And so what about for you? Imagine that if I could take control of these screens for a second and I could post some part of your past or even your thought life or even maybe that secret thing that you still believe about yourself, that lie that you've believed about yourself for a real long time. What if posted to these two screens would ensure that you would never come back here that you couldn't even look at the people in the eye of the row around you. Because if there is something in your life, it means it's robbing you of your future and experiencing the wholeness and peace of new life in Jesus Christ. See, the truth is many of us carry around our past like we do like a phone, enslaving us to the guilt and things of things that we did years before that. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you might as well be holding on to the past of another person because time and time again, the Bible says that you are a new creation in Christ. See, at this well 2,000 years ago, it wasn't just forgiveness that Jesus offered her. It was freedom. And so he points out her sin with the purpose of revealing to her his identity. Follow with me in verse 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, that the one is going to make things right, the one that can take my past and give me a future. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is special. This is incredible. Why? Because this is the very first time that in Jesus' entire life that he has revealed his identity to another human being. It wasn't the religious uh, rulers. It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't even his disciples. It was in a place called Samaria where no Jew should be, To a woman with a backstory that was a Samaritan, he said that the God who hasn't made it all hasn't left it all, and that the God that knows your past and everything about you cares and wants to give you a future. See, either your shame and your sin are lying on your shoulders or it's lying on the cross of Christ. And if it's lying on your shoulders, it will cripple you in bondage. But if it's on the cross, it'll enable you to experience the freedom that God has for you. In scripture, there are two types of life that are described, two Greek words, bios and zoe. Bios, where you get biology, it just means surviving, inhaling, exhaling, just making it through the day, just trying to survive. And then the second type is zoe, which is life full of meaning and abundance, not material abundance, the filling of one's heart, purpose, value, and freedom. Many people settle for bios and don't ever get to experience zoe, a life of abundance. And that's because abundance is only found in walking in obedience with Jesus daily and going to his well. You know, I think John is brilliant. I think that he purposely did not include the woman's name so she can be the perfect stand-in for any one of us that maybe feels like we have a sinful past, feels disadvantaged, believes some lies about ourselves too. Maybe we're broken, cast out unimportant or insignificant. And the truth is, each one of us, right, we have wanted to meet Jesus at the well and do the very same thing with God. Can we give him our past, take off our mask and stop pretending that everything in our lives is perfect? Each one of us, right, has wondered, can we give God all that we are, including all that we've done? And so if you're here today and you have your guard up against Jesus for whatever reason that you may have, maybe it's fear of rejection. Jesus offers you acceptance at the will. Maybe, Maybe it's fear of shame. Jesus offers you a new life. And so regardless of who you are and what you've done and whatever your past is, Jesus says this, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would give you living water. See, water always seeks to fill that which is empty. And the truth is, it's only in the, em- the admission of our emptiness that can God flood us with himself. And so the very same God, like Joel talked about last week, in John chapter 2, that turned water into wine, the very same God that turned The water of baptism in John 3 and the very same God that transformed the waters of the well water in John 4 is the same God who promises to transform your home, your life, your future if you'll give him your heart and say, would you flood me with yourself? Today, you're going to meet 20 people that are going to share their stories via video in a moment that are getting baptized today. They want to share their story of how they've met Jesus at the well and they found life there. Let's pray. Father, today I am thankful that you are a God that consistently and constantly, Lord God, is bringing life into things, God, that are dead. And Father, my prayer is very simple today, Lord God. Would you meet us at the well? Would you empty us of anything, God, that we have placed in our hearts that isn't life-giving? And God, would you flood us, God, with yourself? And so our prayer is simple. Father, will you fill our hearts with your love so we need not go search for it in people or in places of this world? Father, we love you, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we have live services on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings in our West Auditorium. Or you can watch live online at scgchurch.org or on our YouTube and Facebook.